to be here with you among so many servants. There are several different ministry teams in our church. This doesn't happen. And when I say this, I don't just mean Friday morning. I mean throughout the week when we're living out the faith and meeting needs and going out to accomplish the mission of glorifying God by making and developing disciples. It doesn't happen by itself. There are people that are serving and that are sacrificing and are doing it unto the Lord. We have several different ministry teams, and I would encourage you as you look through that little sheet in your, in your bullets in that card, it's very important that you would consider where God would have you serve in our church. One of our ministry teams is, is a communications ministry team led by Kristen Arara. She's new to our church, came about five months ago, and she has been very helpful in launching a website. So if you have a chance today, just last night we went live, it's eccoffisland.org. It's not hard to remember, eccoffisland.org. Check out the new website. It is a ministry tool. That's, that's what we envision this to be, a tool where people can find our church in the zoo. That otherwise might not know where we are because there's no big sign up front. And so this works as a digital sign for those that might not otherwise hear. It's also a tool for you to, as you talk to people and say, hey, come check out church on Friday. Like, church? Like, yes, it's cool. Where do you mean the zoo? They're like, oh, I don't know about that. You say, no, no, it's great. Trust me. Well, go to the website. And, and they can see that it's great just digitally before they get here. And so we, we envision the website as not just information dispensing, but as a real tool for people to get a glimpse before they come in here, that when they come in, what they're going to experience really is just a shadow, a glimpse of heaven itself, where every tribe and nation and tongue gather together to worship the Lamb who is our King, who was slain for us. And so I encourage you to check that out today, eccfisland.org. Um, today we're continuing in our teaching series, What is the Gospel? And we've been in this for a few weeks now. And as I was preparing this week to present God's Word this morning, as we engage in singing the Word and hearing the Word and preaching the Word, everything centered around the Word on the Friday morning, I read a story of a pastor that stood up in front of his, his congregation to preach the Word, and he had a big bandage on his chin. And he was kind of embarrassed, and so he thought that he would explain why he had a Band-Aid on his chin. And he said, well, I was shaving this morning, and he says that he was thinking about his sermon, and he got very distracted, so he cut his chin. And, and then he went on to preach a very long, somewhat tedious sermon. Afterwards, one of the youth came up to him and said, now, pastor, next week, can you think about your chin and cut the sermon instead? <laughs> And so I wasn't preaching last week because one of our elders, um, the new elder, Chris Moritz Van Den Hever, brought the word powerfully for us last week. And I was so blessed to see Chris do what he was made to do, which is preach the word. And so I won't go twice as long today, I promise, all right? Now, I won't go that long. I might go long, but I won't go that long this morning. We've been, again, talking about the gospel. And just to review, just in case maybe you've forgotten what the gospel is. I want you to remind me just for a couple of minutes on the gospel that applies to you and me personally. There are four key words that describe what the gospel is. Remember, what's the first word? God. Very good. Well, who is God? He's the righteous creator, right? So the first word is what? God. What's the second word? Man. Very good. Well, who is man? He is the condemned sinner. 
Every one of us has sinned and fall short of God's glory. So the gospel begins with God, man, third word, Christ. Very good. And who is Christ? The Redeemer, the glorious Redeemer. Righteous Creator is God. Condemned sinner, man, Christ. Glorious Redeemer. What's the fourth word? Response. God, man, Christ, and then response. And how must you respond to the gospel? Faith and repentance. That is the response, is faith and repentance. And so these four words, God, man, Christ, response, matter. Because the more we internalize them, the more that we preach this to ourselves every single day, and the more we can then use these four simple words to share with other people, the more we're going to experience God's presence and His transformation that only comes from the gospel itself. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And so we need to really know these four words. And they're not just four words. This is the gospel. And so today, as we continue in this series on what is the gospel, we're talking about the kingdom of God. Now you're thinking, well, how, how is the kingdom of God part of this God-man-Christ response? How is God's kingdom related to the gospel? Well, I'll tell you this. God's kingdom is revealed in Genesis and in Revelation and everything in between. And so from beginning to end in the Bible, you see a theme. Something called the meta-narrative, the big narrative. Not petite narrative, the meta-narrative, the big story of Scripture. The big story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The primary theme that runs through it, there are several. One is the kingdom of God. Now, you're thinking, hold on a second. So you're telling me the kingdom of God is found in every book of the Bible? The answer is absolutely. Every single book in some capacity is addressing directly or indirectly, but it's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Now, what's so weird about this is that a theme that is so prominent, which is the kingdom of God, is so confusing. I bet you, if I had you write down what is a kingdom of God, or if I had you try to explain to me what is a kingdom of God, I would probably get different answers. I would probably get even some confused answers or just some, well, the kingdom of God is kind of like and try to explain it. And, but many people struggle to define exactly what the kingdom of God is and just as importantly, but more so, why it matters for me today as I'm trying to work and provide for my family and pay my bills and raise my children and just kind of figure out life on this planet in this place called Abu Dhabi where I miss home and it's difficult and lonely sometimes. And as I'm just doing life, what does the kingdom of God have anything to do with how I live my life every single day? Well, the, the confusion over the kingdom of God in the Bible, I think, you know, to be fair, if I'm honest with you, because I've been no different for a long time, I was kind of confused. The kingdom of God was kind of hazy to me. And it was like, I don't understand. I can't nail it down. It felt like I was trying to nail jello to the wall. You know what jello, you know, trying to nail to the wall? It's kind of hard to do that, right? And, and the reason why is because the Bible has a very rich and very diverse way of describing God's kingdom. It's very diverse. And so, for example, if you read Matthew 12, 
God's kingdom is a present reality. But if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, it's not present. It's a future reality. If you go to Romans 14, it's a very inner spiritual blessing. If you go to John 3.3, it can only be received by those that have been born again of God's spirit. If you go to Revelation 11, it describes how this inner spiritual reality that's present, but it's somehow future, is going to govern all the nations on the planet someday. Same kingdom. If you read Matthew 21, it says that people must now, today, must enter into God's kingdom. But the same book, Matthew 8, says that someday, in the future, not today, but later, you go into the kingdom of God. Are you confused yet? I was for a long time. Because you see God's kingdom described throughout the scriptures, and it's so diverse, and it's so rich, but it seems like, okay, God, I believe you, I trust you, yet I'm not exactly sure what the kingdom is, and how will it come, or is it here, or how does this work, and why does it matter to me today? Well, I can tell you, it has everything to do with how you live today. It has everything to do with the gospel. For the gospel itself is the good news that God has sent his son to redeem us from our sin. It is the good news that Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected and offers us forgiveness that's revealed in his word. And the gospel is a proclamation of the kingdom of God. And so let's look at three truths. I'll keep it as simple as possible because I, I really don't like for there to be confusion with things that are this critical. And so let's look at three truths that describe exactly what God's kingdom is and why it matters for us as individuals and as a church. Let's begin by reading in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so what you see here is very important. Let me give you the first truth, and we'll look at this verse. Number one, the first truth is God's kingdom is his redemptive reign. They're kind of big words there, but track me. God's kingdom, number one, is his redemptive reign. Now, when I say reign, I don't mean R-A-N, rising, reigning. It, it never does that in Abu Dhabi, but reign as in R-E-I-G-N. His reigning as a king, his ruling as a king. And so when I say that the kingdom of God, number one, is God's redemptive reign, he is ruling. And so these verses in Mark chapter 1 basically summarize Jesus' ministry here on earth. This is what he is about. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has arrived. So he says, the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So therefore, do what? Repent and believe in the gospel. And so the announcement of the kingdom is, has to be responded to with a believing in the gospel. Now, here's what's hard for us in the 21st century world. There really aren't any more kingdoms. And for those of you from the UK, that's not a kingdom. I'm sorry. I know I'm an American. I don't get it. 
I did watch Kate's wedding, you know, late, delay. My wife made me do it. Uh, I, I didn't want to, but she sat me there and came to watch Kate and saw how beautiful she was. But that's a figurehead. Come on, let's be realistic. We don't know what it's like to live under a sovereign. We don't know. We don't have any idea what it really is like to live under the sovereignty of a monarchy, of a true king who rules. We don't have any point of reference for that in our 21st century modern world. Now, what makes it even more complicated for us is when we hear the word kingdom, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm sure you would agree, you think of the geog geographical rather place. We think of it geographically. And so we think of a kingdom as an area. It's a place where the king has ruling authority, right? We do. And so our, our neighbors, Oman, all right, this country right next door to us, officially it's called the what? The Sultanate of Oman. So that's, that's what that's, his official title is. Well, what is a sultan? Well, in, in the Arab, you know, Muslim, Sharia law world, a sultan is the word for a ruler, a sovereign, a, a king. And so the Sultanate of Oman is where the sultan rules in this area. And Oman has its borders. The, the sultan of Oman has no jurisdiction in Abu Dhabi. It's not his area. He is the sultan of that area. And he has governing authorities within those borders. That is his kingdom. That is his region. Or you might say his realm where he reigns. And so when we think of the kingdom of God, we could think of it in these geographical terms, and it gets it kind of confusing and muddled in our minds. So for 21st century thinkers like ourselves with our modern English language, a better word is kingship than kingdom. And so think of the kingdom of God as his kingship. He is ruling. And so God's kingdom is his rule. It's where he reigns and where he has authority. And so the kingdom of God is his reign where he rules. It's not his realm because it's not dictated by space and time. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And so it says here that he has ultimate authority. Now, of course God does. He's creator. He's a sustainer. And so God rules over everything, and everyone is under God's dominion. We understand that. But when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's specifically talking about the people that he is ruling over. It talks specifically about ruling over his redeemed people. So that's why I say that it is his redemptive reign. It is God ruling over those people that have been redeemed by Jesus. That is what the kingdom of God is, is Jesus ruling over his people, which is why he says in Mark 1.15, the time is not fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am the king. I am here. I'm about to rule. I am now visibly on the earth. The kingdom of God has arrived. And so therefore, repent and believe in the gospel that I have brought. That is what the kingdom is about. It's about the gospel. 
which is why if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a whole list of a lot of evil that hopefully none of us do, but sadly all of us can do these things. Read the list on your own time, 1 Corinthians 6. And after he gives this list of evil things, of people that enjoy and delight in, and that are pursuing evil and are living in this habitual pattern of evil and, and don't love Jesus, he says those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? These, these individuals being described in 1 Corinthians 6 that aren't living for God, don't love him, have no passion for the gospel, aren't believers in Jesus, God is not their king. He's not their king. And so God's kingdom extends to those where he is king, where he is ruling over those that have been redeemed. And so that is why you see Paul, the ultimate church planter, the ultimate evangelist and preacher, scripture author, the apostle Paul, the last verse in the book of Acts that describes in summary who Paul was, his life, it says, that he went about proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. May that be what is said of you. May that be what is said of me and of ECCF Island, that we proclaimed the kingdom of God with being bold, with no hindrance. That is what I want to be about, is about God's kingdom, about Jesus ruling. And so basically in summary of this first point is when you proclaim the gospel, you are actually proclaiming the kingdom of God that Jesus is the ruling sovereign, not just of the world, but of your life personally. And so allegiance to God's kingdom is believing the gospel. And so allegiance to, the, to his kingdom is that you have repented and believed in the gospel. And so rejoicing in the gospel is rejoicing the fact that Jesus is king. Rejecting the gospel is a rejection of Jesus as the king. When you meet someone and you tell them to believe in Jesus and you share the gospel with love, and they say, I don't need that, I don't want that, that's not for me, you have your way, I have my way, you do your Jesus thing and I'll do my thing, what they're doing is they're saying, Jesus is not my king, and I don't want to bow down to him. He is not the Lord of glory. I don't need him. I don't want him. I can do life my way. I am my own sovereign. And that is in direct opposition to who Jesus is. He is the king of glory. And so when we believe the gospel, we're believing in the kingdom. So the, so the kingdom of God is his ruling over those that he is king, his redemptive rule. Number two, God's kingdom has come. And so it has. So this is past tense, okay? It's already here. So God's kingdom, number two, has come. So with the coming of Jesus, God's kingdom has come, and he is currently now ruling over his people. And the best example of this is in the book of Matthew, chapter 12. If you want to turn there. Just next book over, if you were in Mark, just go backwards. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Now the context here, this is a good example of this, is the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so Jesus is doing miraculous things, including casting out demons. And they actually say, no, this man is demonic. Jesus is part of the occult. And Jesus is casting out demons 
because of Satan. Now, here is what Jesus says to these accusations. Matthew 12, verse 28. And he says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so here is the assumption that he is casting out demons, not by the power of Satan, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, no, you're, you're ridiculous. And then later he explains on binding the strong man. He's talking about binding Satan. And so what he's saying here in this context is that he is casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not doing it by Satan's power. And so therefore, Jesus casting out demons and healing the sick and doing the miracles is evidence that indeed the kingdom of God has come with the person and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And so the demons being casted out is a sign that God's kingdom has come. You're wondering, okay, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand how. Connect these dots for me. I don't understand how this works. Well, it really kind of makes sense if you think back to Genesis chapter 1. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them to have his image and to be the king and queen over the earth, to lead humanity, to worship God. And so Adam was representing God to all of humanity. So what you see here is that under God's ultimate kingship, Adam and Eve was the king and the queen. They had dominion is the word used. In Genesis it says that you have dominion over the whole earth, all creeping things and everything, and he even named everything. That shows authority. And so you have Adam is the king of the earth. But there was a demonic force that entered into the kingdom. There was a demonic enemy that came in and tempted and said, Hey, King Adam, you can be like God and be the ultimate ruler of everything. And so this King Adam gave the kingdom over to the serpent. He gave it up. Why? He rebelled. He revolted against the high king, God himself. And this act of treason essentially surrendered his kingdom that God gave Adam. He surrendered it to the serpent king now, who now is described as the prince of the power of the air, the ruling authority of this air. And the kingdom of Satan, this kingdom of darkness, is seen all around us. God's good earth and the kingdom that he gave to humanity is under demonic occupation. This earth is currently occupied by an enemy evil force. And if you don't believe it, just look around. But you see it in the Bible. You, you see it with the Israelites continually being defeated by their enemies. And, and you see it in the kings that were meant to lead Israel, to love God, and they didn't. They went after the pagan idolatry, just religions of the Canaanites and others, and so it was horrible. The kings did not lead them to purity and to worship of God. And you see the kingdom of God in Adam collapsing over and over and over, not worshiping God, and we still see this collapsed kingdom today with broken homes. We see it with divorce. We see it with abortion. We see it with 
horrible, rogue governments that oppress their people. We see it with diseases that, that take the life of not only children, but of old and everything in between. We see the reign of death and evil and of darkness all around us. This is not how God designed the world to be. It is because King Adam surrendered the kingdom, and now there is a kingdom of darkness that is on the earth. So you're thinking, well, how exactly has God's kingdom come? Well, that's the point of the gospel. That's the whole point. And so when you read again in Matthew 12, 28, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so casting out demons is a sign that the king has come to take back what is rightfully his. There is good news. The king has returned. The prince of glory who's been crowned king of glory has come back to reclaim what is his. Which is why you read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says that he, of course God, through Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, it says, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so he takes us out of the darkness and he puts us in the light. And so when you see Jesus and when he is healing the blind, he is pushing back the darkness that engulfs our days, our world. When he casted out demons, he was relieving us of the oppression, of the fear that can cripple us because he healed the lame. He was saying, okay, fear can be crippling, but I have a better plan for you. I plan to deliver you. Jesus, the king, has come to push back the darkness, to dispel it, and to bring us the kingdom of God and to establish it. And when you look around, when you look in this room, do you know what you see? Like I just see people. Yes. What people? The redeemed. In this room right now, demons shudder because the fact that we are here, the fact that there are the redeemed worshiping together is evidence that there is a king of glory who is redeeming people for his own purposes. And the fact that you're sitting here and we're worshiping together with the power of his word, through the power of his spirit, it's evidence that the demon's skulls will be crushed. It's all the proof that they need. The fact that you are living, breathing, and confess Jesus as king is evidence that there is a king. And their days are numbered. And their reign over God's good creation is not going to last. And we have hope. We have hope. But how does this impact you every single day? Well, here's kind of a key question for you, specifically those of you that are married and have children. There's a lot of kids in our church, and I love that. I want to speak to you just for a couple of minutes. How does that impact you as a father and as a mother? Here's a question for you. What rules your life? So I'm asking, what rules, what reigns over your life? You see, we can say, well, King Jesus, Jesus is my king. I love Jesus. He has saved me. He's my Lord. He's my king. And we say that. But sometimes as parents, we send mixed signals. Not always intentionally, but we can very easily send mixed signals. We do it at Christmas, especially 
in a lot of Western homes where we say we want to teach our kids to delight in Jesus, but then at Christmas we say, no, 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 delight in all these possessions. And we shower them all these possessions. They're saying, no, delight in these things instead. It's a mixed signal. Or, or we say things like, the Bible is important, kids. The Bible is important. And it is true. And when we say that, but then our kids never see us reading it. Our kids never see us opening it up. And it was really funny this week because just like I'm trying to encourage our church to use those big picture cards with your kids and review what was being taught in Friday school so that you can disciple your children. Well, I was going through the card this week, and I read the questions, and we talked about it, and, and then I prayed. And then my six-year-old, Abigail, says, Daddy, why didn't you use the Bible? And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, wait a second, I did. I, I did use the Bible, but I'd forgotten for a second because I was going through the card. And my little six-year-old called me out. Why, don't, why didn't you use the Bible? Okay, the card is a tool, but use the Bible too, clearly. That's more important. And so, okay, our children hear the Bible is important, but do they ever see you as a family sit down and you as a mother or as a father actually open the Bible and from the Word teach them? If you don't do that, it's a mixed signal. Now, if we ask your kids, especially those who are a bit younger, teenagers get really savvy, but under teen, especially like elementary school age, if we sat them down and you weren't in the room and we just asked your children, what is most important to mommy and daddy? What does daddy love to do? What is mommy about? What makes mommy's heart beat fast? Why did daddy get up in the morning? If you ask these kinds of questions to your kids without you in the room, what would they say about you? Oh, he loves golf. He loves rugby. She loves to go out with her friends, or, or mommy loves to cook, or mommy loves to whatever, or mommy loves, to, you know, whatever mommy, she loves to work, or whatever. What would your child say that's most important to you. Would your kids ever even say the words, the gospel? Daddy is excited about the gospel. Daddy is about making disciples. Mommy is about leading her family in some capacity, in their language, with their five-year-old language, fine. In their own words, what would they say? And that is indicative of what you value. Not what you say, but how you actually live. Who is the king? What is actually ruling your home? I would hope that if you ask my kids when I'm not around, what is most important to, to daddy? I hope they'd say the gospel, making disciples, or loving Jesus, or worshiping, something along those lines. We talk about it every single day for crying out loud, as I would hope they would say that, but I don't know, ask them if you want. I don't, I'm not afraid of you asking them. I'm really not. May you have that same mentality of your children where when they are asked that that's what they would say, where would the gospel be on the list? This is important. It's so easy for us to talk about things and actually live it out. And so when Jesus is your king, it impacts your family life. But it's not just if you have children. This is for all of life. This is for every one of us in the room. Is he the king? Does he really rule in your life? Let me, 
Let me just tell you this. If you're trying on your own willpower to submit to King Jesus, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get really frustrated with this king. You're going to get so angry, and you're going to get tired, and he's going to feel like he's a taskmaster. And if you're trying on your own willpower to submit to King Jesus, I'm telling you, you're not going to last. That's not what God wants. It's not about that. For you to submit to King Jesus requires a heart change, a radical, deep, spiritual heart change. And it's seeing more beauty and more glory in King Jesus than in anything else that this world has to offer. Let me give you an example. How many of you saw the movie Avatar back in 2010? Any of you see that movie? All right, too few of you. About almost half. It was a huge blockbuster, made the most money of any movie in the history of humanity, whatever that matters to you. But and anyway, in 2010, the movie Avatar was, again, to this day, the biggest grossing moneymaker of any movie ever made. And in this movie, Avatar, I'll give you just brief little minuscule overview of this movie. What you have is a loser. This guy, the main character, he, was, he had no passion, no courage, no future, no life. He was, a, he was portrayed as the real nobody with no, no desires of any kind, just floating through life, miserable experience. And then he finds himself swept up into this incredible, amazing adventure that he could never foresee. And he gets just, just swept up into this story. And he faces real danger. And for the first time, he's brave. And for the first time, he experiences real beauty. Not that I like blue tails, kind of weird to me. If you watch the movie, you know what I'm talking about. I don't find that attractive personally. But in the movie, it's displayed as true beauty. And this guy gets so captivated that when he comes back to the real world, he's changed fundamentally a different person. And the temptations that used to grip him now have no more hold on him. You know why? why he was no longer afraid, and why temptations had no more grasp on him? Because he had tasted real beauty. He had experienced something so glorious that it completely transformed him. In the word, he was satisfied. And so this movie, I don't like all of the politics in the movie, but I do love the picture of transformation that takes place because of experiencing true beauty. And that's the reality of the kingdom of God and the gospel. See, that's what happens to you and me when we are swept into this story, this incredible story, the greatest story ever told. I mean, of all the movies, the greatest story ever told is the story of humanity that was plunged into the domain, the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, and then the, the rightful heir of the throne, he comes, the prince of glory comes, the king, he condescends and he comes into the darkness and he dies in the place of his people that he loves so much that are enslaved to all kinds of addictions and to sin and fear. And this king dies in the place of his people. 
and he powerfully is resurrected by the power of God, and he conquers the enemy. And we experience true beauty, and our heart is changed, and all of a sudden it's a want to. And now I want to please Jesus. Now my heart is so changed, I've seen such glory and beauty that I, I want to submit to King Jesus because my heart's been changed. Because God's kingdom is here now, and it's around us as we all submit to his kingship. But you see, his kingdom is his reign over his people. It has come and is here now, but thirdly, it is not yet complete. So thirdly, it's not yet complete. So the kingdom comes in two stages. First stage came with Jesus. The second stage will come on that day when he returns. And so God's kingdom is not yet complete. Let's read the last few verses and we'll wrap things up. This is important. Isaiah 65. As you turn, I'll remind you, yes, God's kingdom is here. He is ruling in the hearts of his people. But Satan, the enemy, has not yet been cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus is not yet ruling visibly on the earth. Now he will. Let's read about that. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and our people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard than its sound of weeping and of cry of distress. This is a prophecy written 800 years before Jesus came, pointing to a future day. There will be no more weeping, no more crying. We will be glad as we are God's people, a new heaven, a new earth, where God's kingdom will be complete. Isaiah also 11.9 says, For the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole world on that day will confess Jesus as king. And so at that point, everyone will be part of the kingdom. The whole world will be his realm because he is the king and every single person in the new earth will confess Jesus as his or her king. But that hasn't happened yet. The kingdom is not yet complete. God has not consummated his plan, but Jesus will be crowned and we're all going to see it. It is coming. Heaven really is a real place. It's real. It's not fantasy. And it's not you with like turning into like an infant, you know, with, with little wings and strumming a harp and being in the clouds. That, that's not heaven. That's not heaven. Heaven is earth recreated, glorified, purged from evil, the kingdom of God ruling Jesus ruling over everything. God made it good, and he's going to restore it, redeem it to be good once again. It'll be earth, but perfect, just like you're going to be a human, but perfect. It's going to be our life as we know it, but without sin. It's going to be glorious, and we will be with God, and he's going to be ruling over us, and no more sin. I can't wait. And the Bible tells us to wait for that, to be expecting it. But the Bible also tells us that there's another real place, the lake of fire, hell that was designed for Satan 
and for his evil hordes. It's designed for him. But God gave us a mission to glorify him by making and developing disciples, people that submit to the wonderful kingship of Jesus. And that's why we're here. That's what we do. We tell people so that they won't go to that lake of fire. Because every person who says no to the gospel is living in opposition to the king. That's a very dangerous place to be, is to live in opposition to King Jesus. And I don't want anyone to die in opposition to the king. I don't want anyone to die not knowing forgiveness and the love of God, experiencing his presence, his approval. It's not yet complete, but we still have a job to do as we wait for him to complete it. But this gives us hope that whatever is troubling you today, whatever is on your heart, whatever you're just burdened about, whatever is just not right in your world. You know, there's this myth that pastors got it all together, right? And pastors have no problems. Well, that's just not true, if I can be honest with you. It is so far from the truth. And I need this as much as you need this. Not everything is perfect and rosy in my life. I have my challenges, I assure you. I have things that are just difficult and that put me on my face before God. And I say, God, you have to show up. You have to change this because there's nothing that I can do to change circumstances beyond my control. And the reality is that what gives me hope is the reality that Jesus has conquered and he is good, and I trust that he loves me, and he loves you. And whatever is ailing you today, you can know that Jesus loves you. He wants to be your king because that is the best place for you to be. So if you're here today, and you've never repented of your sins, you have never come to the point where you understood that you are a sinner, and that Jesus died for you, and he offers you forgiveness. He paid the penalty for your sins, and he wants to be your king because he wants you to understand what it is to be in a relationship with him, to live for him, not for yourself, because we're too small. You can receive Christ today as your Lord and your Savior. I'm going to ask worship team to come to the front here. As we come to time of response, I'll remind you in Mark 1, where we began this morning. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news that Satan has been defeated. And the day will come when, when Christ will come back in full glory. And we anticipate that day with great expectation. It gives us hope to face today. Father, we are thankful that you have a plan. No matter how bleak things look, no matter how dark things look, no matter how difficult life can be, no matter how much pain or discouragement or disappointment we experience, our hope is in you, Jesus. For only you can deliver us. You have come to dispel the darkness to give us hope and life and eternity. 
And we thank you that you have come and that you'll come back one day to complete what you started. Until that day, we will see more beauty and glory in you and we will allow your spirit to transform us. I pray for anyone in this room right now that does not know you as their Lord, as their master, as their king, and as their savior. I pray that they would have the courage to repent and believe in you and be completely changed from the inside out. Thank you, Father. Thank you for our church. Thank you for your word that we're built upon. Thank you for our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.